today is, today's sermon is kind of like last week, if you recall, um, kind of the ABCs, or really the A to Z of the Christian life we talked about. Um, in, uh, there's, a, there's a verse I've always found startling that my pastor showed me a few years ago uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. So the book of Timothy, 1st and 2nd, are Paul's first and second letters to a pastor named Timothy, right? And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul is telling this pastor uh, something you maybe would find odd. He says this, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. As if a pastor would forget that. Isn't that peculiar, right? It's like going to the seminary and saying, Guys, remember, Jesus is God, or Christianity's true. And he would say, That's why we're here. We know. That's what, that's what we're supposed to do, right? Uh, likewise, in Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. So Paul tells the Roman church, the Christians, I'm looking forward to preaching the gospel to you. And you would think they would say, well, we know. We like already believe that. Shouldn't you tell us maybe other things, like deeper things, more complicated things? Uh, Jesus himself tells the disciples over and over and over, if you read the gospel accounts, that he will and must be betrayed. He will suffer. He will die. And he will rise from the dead. And each time he says, are you guys not listening? Don't you remember what I told you, right? All the time, it's they just, they're slow to understand, right? Uh, a church member once asked Martin Luther, this is in the 1500s, Luther, why do you preach the gospel to us week after week? And Martin Luther replied, because week after week, you forget it. Okay, thank you for that comforting word. If this is true in Paul's day and in Luther's day, how much more do we think that we have grown past our remembering and our treasuring and our meditating on the gospel? This is Paul's approach in 1 Corinthians 15, that he just lays out the simple components of the gospel for us to kind of stand by the fire of it and warm our hearts. So not to just look at it and say, yeah, that's great, but to stand and to pause, right? That's the point. Uh, there's an article that was written in 2013 by Desiring God. It's a website I recommend you check through and look at sermons and free books and articles, Desiring God. And in 2013, there was an article by their executive editor named David Mathis. It used to be John Piper, I believe, but now it's David Mathis. And the article is titled this, 12 Gospel Passages to Soak In. And I've read it pretty regularly, maybe not every year. That's probably an exaggeration, but I've read it multiple times. And it's not really profound. It's not really like, whoa, it's just very simple. And here's what it says. It's all wonderful and good to learn various truths from the Bible. And there are many crucial truths to learn. But we must not miss or minimize the one truth of the gospel, namely the word of the truth. Ephesians chapter 1, Colossians 1. The message is so central and significant that the apostle calls it not merely a truth, but the truth throughout the pastoral epistles. And he cites 1 Timothy 2, 3, 4, 6, 2 Timothy 2, 3, 4, Titus 1, Titus 1. So the, the whole article is about, here are 12 texts in the Bible that just explain the gospel. You just need to know them. Just soak them in and you soak in them. And one of the texts he cites is 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4. So my whole point in preaching this, it's very, very simple. What is the gospel? It's this right here. It's just very simple. I want you to just... Be warmed by it. Maybe you forget it like I do sometimes. You don't live according to the gospel all the time. Or maybe you just throw around the word gospel, and I don't even know how, how I would really explain that well. Or I jumble through it. I kind of, how do I explain that well? Um, maybe you don't even know what the gospel is. 
that would be a good time to come here. So my hope is that you will get a clear understanding of what the gospel is, and you would stand like me by the fire of it and just, I need to hear that every single week, every day, and just be warmed by it. So let's do that together. It's a very simple text, nothing really long. It's very short, but it's very helpful. Uh, so first, look at the first point here is the gospel of Christ. I want to tell you two things. First, the gospel is simply a message. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you. So it's a delivery. It's a message, right? Or if you look at verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I preach to you. I preach to you, right? So the gospel is, it's news. It's a statement of fact in history. Uh, before we go anywhere about the gospel, we need to go to Jerusalem, right? It's, it's about something that actually happened. Now, what we can do, but what God has done for us. That's the gospel. It's not about us doing things, but what God has done for us, right? Christianity is founded really upon a news headline, isn't it? Something that happened, right? It's an event in history. Therefore, this news must be relayed or told, or maybe even you could say preach. Preach just means to herald, to declare something, right? Because the, the word gospel literally means what? It means good news, right? That's why when you read uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the gospel, right? So the good news according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? And the message of Christianity is just that. It's a message from God to us. And God uses messengers, right? Prophets and apostles, and their job was not to tamper or alter or repackage it, but like a good messenger, like a good mailman, like a good FedEx driver, like a good mail person, just deliver it, and that's it. Just take it to the door, that's, just, you just leave it, you deliver it, right? This also means that belief or acceptance or worse, rejection, uh, does not change what the good news is, right? If it's a news headline, well, I don't believe it. It's kind of irrelevant if you believe it. If it happened, it happened, right? It's not really changed by our belief, right? It's objectively true. Belief doesn't alter it. Um, you either believe it or you don't, and it's either true or it's not, right? Perhaps it would give you a freshness this morning of good news that to know that the Christian faith then cannot be altered or infected or changed simply by subjective feelings. Right? Well, I don't really feel like I believe it or I don't even know if it's true or not. I don't really think I like it. It's okay. It really doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't really change anything. Rather, Paul himself says this, that he delivered what he also received, right? It's a historical truth that stands through the ages of time. As Christians, we believe that there was once a man named Jesus of Nazareth. He actually existed. He actually was who he claimed to be. He did things. Things happened to him. We actually believe he's a real person, right? If you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed, it just says simply that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Just a way to tell us there was a real person named Pontius Pilate. It happened under him. So it's, it's a real historical person. It's a real time. It really happened. It's a real event, right? God constantly, if you read the Old Testament, he calls the Israelites not to remember feelings, but to remember events, right? What's he say? Remember the Red Sea. Remember Pharaoh. Remember Egypt. Remember the wilderness, right? Not how do you feel, but remember things. Remember events, right? So the gospel is first and foremost a message. Secondly, the gospel is of first importance. Look at verse 3 again. Paul says very simply, it is of first importance, which I also received. If Paul was a Delivery man, he would probably put a, um, a high-priority sticker on this package, right? This is first importance. It's got to be overnight shipping. It's coming right now. It's first importance, right? 
Now, all of us are known for what we love most, what we uphold the most. And Paul says that the gospel is of first importance. If we are to be known as Christians about for anything in the world, Paul's saying, it's got to be this. If we're known for anything, let it be the gospel. Now, you guys know this. If you, if you read your Bibles and, and just read like the gospel of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, the majority of the book is three years of Jesus' life. I mean, it just flies, right? I mean, Matthew chapter 1, then you're, wow, I'm already towards his betrayal. It's kind of, it's kind of fast. So they speed through, and then they slow down on Jesus' last day, right? Really, the last few days, they just they put the brakes on, they back up. And they don't really give the details you would think they would. So when Jesus heals tons of people, aren't you kind of like, what did it look like? Like, what your hand, did it grow back? Did you have, like, when your hand, did your eyes open up? Did you get new eyes? Your leprosy, what it looked like going? They, they just tell you he got healed. When it comes to the events of Jesus dying, they give you every, I mean, they slow-mo this, right? They tell you about his pure side, about the blood. They tell you who was there, who wasn't there. They tell you where he was at. They tell you what happened, even what time of day it was, because they want you to focus on Christ, right? They slow down. Why? Because it's of first importance. In chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that, I decide to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified her. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So Paul says the gospel is it's way up here. It's got to be first, right? Primary. We are not primarily of first importance. A helping people, a community people, a reforming the community people, a culturally engaged people, though those things Christians should be known for. Not neglecting that. But biblically, we should be known primarily as a heralding people. We preach good news. Right? That's what we're known for. That's what we ought to be known for. Thus, any church or Christian or Christians that demands our highest priority priority be anything else but the gospel, no matter how good it is. Like, guys, like, don't misunderstand. As Christians, we should care about abortion. You should care about it. You should care about orphans. You should care about those things. You should care about poor. You should. But if that is why we exist and it's not the gospel... We are off, and we're just so off-center. It has to be this. First importance, right? Paul says, let's fight about it. I'm an apostle, let's argue. He's laying it down very simply, right? This is why in two of Paul's letters, Galatians and Philippians, he gives what seems to be almost contradictory commands. Like, Paul, why are you talking like this? If you read the epistles, sometimes Paul says things that, why does he say this and not that? And why here and not there? Let me give you an example. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says something very strong. Uh, If anyone preaches a different gospel, me or an angel, whoa, Paul says, let them be accursed. Let them go to hell. God damn them. Paul, that's pretty serious. Seriously, just for different gospel? Whoa. But then in Philippians 1, Paul says, hey, you know those guys that are like false teachers, you know, that are really prideful preachers? Well, they're preaching the gospel rightly. But they're being very selfish. At least they're preaching it. Paul, shouldn't you be angry at them? Like, get on those guys, right? But why is he not mad? Well, Paul cares that the gospel is being preached, right? He's more concerned about the content of the gospel and less about the delivery. You guys know this too. If you've ever been to a restaurant, what are you more concerned about? Whether or not the, I mean, I don't want a rude waiter. I don't want them spilling my water. That's okay. I'm more concerned if they tamper with my food. I, Kale, I know what you ordered. 
but I, I, I want to get you something else. That's not what I ordered, right? I know you didn't want pickles, but we put a lot of pickles in there. Why would you do that? What you're more concerned about is, is it right? Is the, or is the order right? Is the gospel right, right? Maybe we could butcher it, how we deliver it, maybe we could stumble through it, but is the meat of it right? Is the core right? Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Men may preach the gospel better than I can, but man cannot preach a better gospel. A true church then is where the gospel is rightly preached. And we must not treat it like, like our grandma's fine china. We just take it out for special occasions. It's got to be here every Sunday, every morning, right? Hold me to that. If you don't hear it, tell me. It's the gospel. It's what we land on, right? Secondly, Paul says this is the gospel. So now he's going to unpack what is the gospel. Well, good. I'm glad you asked. Look at, look at verse 3 here again. First, the death of Christ. Two things, very simply. First, that Christ died for our sins. Look at verse 3. Namely, that Christ died for our sins, right? And this good news is very odd, isn't it? Good news rarely, if ever, starts with someone dying. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Someone died. All right. Freak, right? Weirdo. But death is only good news, friends, in its relation to Christ, who is the author of life, the Bible says. He, was, he subjected himself to death. The Gospel of John says that in Christ was life. He speaks the words of eternal life, that he is the way, the truth, and the what? Life, right? So why, why did he have to die? If that's true, then why did Jesus have to die? It doesn't make any sense. Why did he die? If you've read your Bible from the book of Genesis, you know... In Genesis chapter 3, that God promised Adam and Eve that to eat of the fruit of the tree, to disobey, to sin, right, would bring about the curse of death, right? This means death in every aspect, right? It means physical, means spiritual, means people die, means flowers and animals and stars die, right? Creation, literally everything dies, right? So this is God's response to sin. Adam's sin and God strikes the earth with a curse, right? Romans chapter 8 says God judged the earth. And because we know that the wage of sin is what? It's death, right? So God says, you want to sin? Strike to judgment, right? Isaiah chapter 6 says that God is holy, 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 right? He's nothing like us. He's far above us. He's not just morally perfect, but he's high above us, right? He's creature, creator. There's way infinite gap. That's what it means. The psalmist says very simply that God is good and righteous in Psalm 11. Now, this is really good news that God is good and holy and perfect, right? Amen. It's good news, right? But for sinners, friends, this is terrible news. I once heard a pastor say that it is, if you're a sinner, it is bad news that God is good. Because that means you are in trouble. Because we are not. If God were to leave all of humanity under his judgment and wrath, God would still be good and just and righteous and holy. But God desired to show forth the crown jewel of himself, namely his grace. The Bible says that God demonstrates his love towards us, that while we were still sinners, he sends forth his son, the God-man born of a man, right? Jesus Christ, he's one of us by, by being born of a woman. He's, he's an actual person, but he's not one of us in that he was born of the Spirit, right? He has a different nature. He was, he's not sinful like us. He has a, a flesh like us, but not a sinful nature, right? Jesus fully obeyed. He was fully righteous under God's law. 
So why did Jesus have to die? Well, because the wage of sin is what? It's death. Get that nail into your brain, right? His death then was for our sins, not his own. He didn't have any. He suffered, died, and bore the judgment that sinners deserve and earn. Do you like being falsely accused of things? I do not. You did not get what I said. Yes, I did. I saw you yesterday. No, you did not see that. And you get blamed? I don't like being blamed for things I didn't do, right? Well, in a sense, that's kind of how the gospel is. Jesus was blamed for things he didn't do, right? Adam's first sin, Lord, it's the woman you gave me, right? Good job, husband. Right? That's in our nature. I don't like being blamed, right? We blame other people, right? Well, Jesus was blamed for us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous him for the unrighteous sinners. So that when God looks upon Christ, God counts Jesus as anybody who would trust him. Namely, the wages of your sins paid by his death. Not yours, but his. Should be ours. Jesus died then for sins or on account of, in the place of, as a substitute, right? And we know what substitution is, right? If you've ever even played basketball or any kind of sport, when one player commits a foul, we're all affected, right? He's, he's kind of your representative, right? He did it, we all get affected. That's kind of how Adam worked, Adam sinned, we get affected. It's the same how the gospel works, which we'll get on to. So the death, the death of Christ and alone satisfies God and all his demands. One perfect life, right? Praise God. One perfect man, the God-man. So here's the good news, friends, is we can be made right with God. Jesus put away our sins, the Bible says, as far as the east is from what? The west. You know how far that is? You can't even measure it, right? That's the point. Um, as Americans, especially, we really like poles. Eight out of ten people say this. Nine out of ten dentists re- recommend this toothpaste. Always that one guy doesn't like that toothpaste. Always that one. You ever, you ever notice that? We love poles. I have a pole for you. Spend a lot of money figuring this pole out. Ten out of ten people will die. Spend a lot of money figuring that out. When you stand before God, what will be your plea? See, friends, none of us are getting out of this room alive. Life, really. Not this room, hopefully. <laughs> but life. We're not. The last three weeks or so, I've known two people that have died. Uh, one was the FedEx worker that I trained. It's probably been, been a while. Uh, I shared the gospel with him. It's been quite a while. Uh, he's 23 or so. He died overnight, right? Um, a couple weeks ago. And I also know a person from, from our seminary. It was a young girl, 24, 23, about the same age. She's going to graduate this May. She killed in a car accident. Two people, same death, right? It's coming. But I firmly believe there are two different eternities in both those people's lives. What, what, what will be your plea? What will it look like? What will you say? John Wesley said this, Indeed, there is no little sin because there's no little God to sin against. Friends, your sins, believe it or not, are a stench in God's eyes. They reek. What about my good works? The Bible says they are what? Filthy what? They're bad too. Filthy rags. They're not attractive, right? I mentioned before, I used to work at a courthouse. I've seen a lot of tough men, tough guys, brave guys. I remember seeing a guy, again, young, 20s, uh, some kind of DUI accident, smacked a car, killed somebody. 
And on that day, that tough man, when he's sentenced, he cried like a baby. Rightly so. Friends, on that day before the Lord, just like that man, he, he, but judge, I've done great things. Don't you know what I've done? I don't always hit people. I drive really well most of the time. Would you, would you, would you forgive me this time? I go to church, judge. None of that would work. Same with you. None of that will work. It's too late. When you're in front of the judgment seat, it is too late. No works. Well, that guy's worse than me. Doesn't matter. The Bible says right, rather than you stepping forward, God did this in Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. God put Christ forward as a propitiation, one to take judgment for you by his blood. So God calls you to see your guilt, to acknowledge it, to repent, and to embrace Christ. The first step in the gospel is Christ's death. Therefore, to become a Christian, your first step is to die, right? The Bible says to deny yourself, to die, to say no to self, put your trust in Christ, right? To go after him. Richard Sibb said it this way, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Does it get any better than that? Friends, God is kind towards sinners. He is merciful and he is gracious. Secondly, Paul says, and briefly here, in accordance with the scriptures. Look at verse 3. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, right? This is then where the love of God shines, I think, even brighter still. So Paul embarks to show us that before the foundation of the earth, the wisdom of God, the mercy of God, the sovereignty and plan of God, the glory of God is shown so brightly in what Jesus did. This reminds us that not only was Christ's death prophesied, but it tells us, I think simply, that God's plan to put Christ forward was not unplanned, right? It wasn't a response. When Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't go, okay, guys, what should we do? It's been like three days. What do we do now? It wasn't in response, right? It was already planned. The fall was part of the plan, right? Jesus also wasn't some kind of victim primarily. Yes, he was, he was a victim. He was beat up. Yes, we agree with that. But he wasn't a victim of, ah, oh, man, I'm just stuck in a bad spot. Unlucky, right? Rather, Jesus came voluntarily. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I lay my life down. No one takes it. I lay down what I want. He came in love and mercy voluntarily, right? So the death of Christ was the plan of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the earth, right? And if you read your Old Testament, you, you, you see little glints right? When Paul says, uh, according to the Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament, right? That's their Bible, so we're looking, we call it the Old Testament, but that's what it is, right? Paul's saying, in that Bible, this whole thing was talked about. And you think, really? All I see is like Noah, maybe David, a bunch of blood. Where's it at? I'm going to give you a couple real quick ones, just very briefly. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, Adam and Eve sin. God says, hey, one day someone's going to come from woman who's going to crush that serpent. He's coming, right? One day he'll be here. He will defeat Satan, right? Maybe Genesis chapter 22, Abraham and Isaac, right? There's a father who has a one and only son. He goes to offer him on a mountain as a sacrifice, right? What does God do? Ah, stop. Not yet. I have a substitute, right? There, there's a ram to be offered instead, right? So sounds like something, okay, it sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? 
Psalm 22 speaks of one who was forsaken, mocked, scorned. He was pierced. His clothing was divided. No bones were broken in his death. Jesus quotes this psalm on the cross. In Zechariah 12, 10, it literally says that God will be pierced. Whoa. That's earth shattering, isn't it? You're going to pierce God. What does that even mean? So friends, there's more. The scriptures were God's means of orchestrating history around the gospel. From Judas to the Roman soldiers to the Jews to the disciples falling away to the wounds of Christ, all of these things, all these people were merely supporting actors. They're not the main person. The drama is Christ, right? They're, they're just there to make sure that happens. God's ruling in this, right? The scriptures are going to be commanding this. So then the scriptures had to be fulfilled because we have broken God's commandments. There's no other remedy, no other cure, no other means by which sinful man can be made right with God. I want to give you something really encouraging to think about this. This is good because this means that God's kindness towards you, his love for sinners, is not responsive. Therefore, it's not revocable. Do you, do you understand that? If God acted in response, he could say, well, then I'm done. He could turn away. But because it was not in response but planned, it's not going to change. Right? Do you see that? Therefore, friends, there is the love of God endures forever from eternity past through history and into eternity future. Isn't that good news? It's not dependent on how good you are because you're just not. Good morning. <laughs> you're not good. Therefore, no sinner is too poor or too wicked, too backslidden, too hypocritical, too foolish or too sinful, because there is a Christ for you. He's offered to you. God commands sinners to place the hand of faith on the head of Christ, say, he can take the guilt. I can't bear it. Transfer your sins to him by faith and trust him to stand before God for you. See, that man on, in the courthouse that I saw, he would do anything for someone to stand in his place. Take that judgment, right? I don't want that. Well, by faith, Christ does that for you on Calvary, right? on the cross. That's the gospel. Not, made, not my bankrupt life. I need someone else to do it for me, right? Now your sins are removed on the cross. But it doesn't stop there. So you need to be not just cleared of your guilt. You need righteousness. You can't just stand before God with a clean slate. If you do, you're just going to beef it with the next five seconds. You're going to throw it again. You don't just need a clean slate. You need holiness. You need perfection. You need righteousness. Well, how do we get that? Verse 4. This is the resurrection of Christ. I'm going to tell you two things again, very simply here. First, Jesus was raised from the dead. Look at verse 4. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. So your hope before God is 100% dependent upon Jesus being alive right now. So as Christians, we, we should really put Easter before Christmas. I love Christmas. Love it. But Easter is more important, isn't it? If that happened, Christmas is just, just like any other birthday. It's irrelevant, right? If Jesus is dead, so is our righteousness. So is his, therefore. Think about who Christ is. How many people have flipped the world upside down like him? It's peculiar, isn't it? He wrote no books. He, wasn't, he didn't really have any money. He wasn't a king or like a military leader. He wasn't Alexander the Great wiping out people. He wasn't a monarch. He wasn't really that popular. 
didn't have great wealth. He wasn't a political person. But Christ split time in half because he's alive. Jesus was buried, right? He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, all four gospels say it's who it was. So Jesus was not asleep, right? He wasn't just like, hey, pretty close to dead. He didn't just appear dead. There was no CPR. It was not going to happen. You cannot resuscitate him. He is dead, dead. Dead as a doornail. Dead, right? The gospel accounts tell us that he actually died. His side was pierced. His body was taken down. They handled him. They knew he was dead. They wrapped him up. They knew he was dead, right? He lay in a cold, dark tomb. John Wesley wrote a song that says, The immortal died. God died. You could, you could actually say that in Christ, God died. It's true to say that. He laid in death. Now, our only means of salvation from God's judgment, then, is our standing in Him, right? Look at this text, verse 4. He was raised on the third day. Friends, here's the stunning fact about the gospel. Jesus puts, Jesus puts death to death. Amen, right? Death died. No one does that, but Jesus just slaughters it, right? Our only means of salvation from God's judgment is this reality. Jesus gripped death and subdued it. He rose from the dead in victory. The wage of sin paid, the penalty of sin overcome. Jesus Christ is a living Savior. He's alive for everyone. We just sang that. Friends, this matters because if Jesus Christ is not alive, then again, he was just like you and me. I can't save anybody. I can barely make my hiccups go away for crying out loud. I can't do anything. But because he is alive, we have a living hope, an enduring hope, a promise that goes past the grave, right? All those tombstones out there, they have a little dash in the middle, right? Birth, death. Well, in Christ, your dash just keeps going. It's life forever. It just keeps going, right? You don't just die, stop. You keep going. So his death then removes our guilt. His resurrection gives us righteousness, right standing. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 25. I'll read it to you. Paul makes it very clear. Jesus, who was delivered up, so death, for our trespasses, that's sin, right? Died for sin and was raised for our justification. That means that God can look at you, though you're guilty, and say, righteous right he, he doesn't change anything about you it's a declaring it's he declares sinners righteous right he doesn't really make you better he doesn't do really it's, it's a declaring it's a statement it's good news over you right just like judges they don't make anybody righteous or guilty they just declare it right gavel slams guilty gavel slams innocent right and this is good news because when your heart is like mine doesn't always feel alive to Jesus. He's alive for you. There are days where you feel like, man, my sins, they are so many. John Newton said it, when our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Friends, this is why one perfect life, one God-man can alter the eternity of every man, namely any man. All who would turn from their sins in repentance, place their faith in Christ, can be counted not just as innocent or neutral, but as righteous, just like Christ. The full righteousness of Christ credited to your account by faith. Sinners are restored to God through Christ. Therefore, run to Jesus, right? He's all sufficient for you. 
Believe upon him. By faith, you are banking your entire eternity on somebody else. Do it on him, not me. That's the work of faith. And saying, don't look at my record. It's terrible. Look at his. Judge me on his, right? I want plagiarism all the way to heaven. Give me his. I don't want my work. Give me his work. The life of Christ then saves the worst of sinners. His merits are more than enough. Your account overflows. He's your surety, your anchor, your guarantee. John Flavel says this, that Christ is so in love with holiness that at the price of his blood, he will buy it for you. I hope that Christ's righteousness today is fresh for you this morning. If you've not partaken to that, I'm going to ask you, why do you reject such an offer? Friends, God could give us a thousand worlds, a thousand things in them. But he offers one Christ. Secondly, Paul says this is done in accordance with the scriptures. Very simply, in accordance with the scriptures, right? Jesus Christ was prophesied to rise from the dead to be a resurrected Savior. Again, this is promised, it's guaranteed, it's written down for our security, right? Before the foundation of the world, friends, Jesus had a heart for sinners. Do you, do you understand how good that is? He actually had a heart for you before you were here. To bring you to himself. His heart was brimming for sinners. It was overflowing for his bride. There's no greater love than Christ because it starts from eternity. It means it didn't have a beginning. It just always has been, right? Because this was promised, the resurrection then is permanent. Jesus said that he came not to abolish the law, but to do what? Do you remember? Fulfill it, right? So he, Old Testament, Jesus says, I love it. I'm actually here to fulfill what I talked about. So because no jot or tittle can be erased from the scriptures, no drop of Christ's love for you can be erased. Not an ounce of his mercy can just wither away. No fraction of his righteousness to your account can just be deleted. Your standing in Christ is as permanent as his righteousness. Your assurance before God is as sure as the written word. Isn't that good news? It's not about how you feel. It's this. Christ. So again, Paul says scriptures. Well, what's he referring to? Again, the Old Testament, right? I want to just write off a couple texts here for you. Psalm 16, very clear. The apostles preached Psalm 16 like crazy in the book of Acts, saying that Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He, he would see life again. Psalm 22, again, speaks of his death and life after death. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant, right? Dying. And later he will make many righteous. He will see his offspring. Hosea 6 says that one day there will be a third day resurrection and we will all benefit from it. Interesting, isn't it? In Daniel chapter 12, it talks about us being raised from the dead. But that's only going to happen if Christ is alive, right? So Jesus Christ stands forever as the righteous one for all who would trust him. He's opened the way for sinners to come into fellowship with God. So friends, as Christians, we do not offer a 10-step program, right? 10 things you can do. We don't offer that. Praise God. We don't say, clean your life up first, drop all that bad stuff, and then you can come to Christ. That's not what we say. What do we say? Are you a sinner? Go to him. But I'm, I'm not good enough. That's the point. <laughs> but I'm really bad. Then go faster. Go. Run to Jesus, right? He saved really bad sinners. His, his mercy extends past the grave. 
And ironically, when you die, you actually get closer to his love, don't you? His cords of love draw you through the grave, don't they? Someone once said that the resurrection of Christ is the amen of all his promises. That's helpful. So very simply, Paul has shown us three realities of the gospel. That's the message for the death of Christ, and it's the resurrection of Christ. But how does that affect me right now? I'm already a Christian, let's say. What does that do anything with me? I already believe that. Why don't you hear that again? I'm going to give you, and I mean brief, very three, three very brief encouragements for you. Number one, not by works, but to works. Every religion destroys the gospel. Do you know that? You could really make two uh, tents. If you're a tent maker, I'm not, but you could. Uh, Christianity over here, every other religion right here. You just name any of them, put them right here. This camp over here says, you try really hard, do a lot of good stuff, believe God, you're good to go. Christ says, stop. You're not good. Trust and obey. You just trust me. You repent, you put your trust in Christ. That's, that's it, right? It's either faith alone or faith plus works. And we, the Bible is very clear, it's faith alone. Like Adam in the garden, we make fig leaves of works to cover our sin, right? Friends, sin lies to you. It says that you can please God by what you do. Romans 8 says you can't. You just can't please. In Romans chapter 8, verse 7 and 8. Again, we do not clean up our life, then become Christians. The opposite is true. For by grace are you saved through faith, right? Not of what? Works. I think it says that God prepares good works for you. So you come to Christ, then you obey, right? We do not obey to be justified. We are justified, therefore we obey, right? We can't mix that up. John Flavel again says the law sends us to Christ to be justified. So you look at the law and you go, oh, I'm in trouble. Go to Jesus. And then Jesus sends you to the law to be regulated, to be obedient, right? So friends, don't ever mix this up. Conversion is not moral compliance. It's not just doing less bad things. That's not conversion. Many immoral people will go to hell. Do you understand that? Like a ton. Repent and believe in Christ. Matthew says, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So faith secures our salvation and works display it, right? By your fruits you will know them. So we are beating out of a heart, out of love, compelled by God's kindness. Works follow conversion. By works we mean obedience, right? We mean doing what God commands, right? Secondly, not my works, but his works. Sounds similar, but I want to give you a reason why it's different. This also means that God has satisfied his demands for you in Christ in conversion. So if you're a Christian, let me get your attention real quickly here. How do you know today you're in right standing with God? How do you know? What have you done today? What have you not done? See, if we live like that, we're going we're gonna to have gloomy days for the rest of our life. Do you guys know what layaway is? Put a little money down, put it aside, make a little installments later, right? That's not the gospel. Jesus did not say, I'll make the big payment. Just make little installments as you go. That is not the gospel. That's law, right? How do you keep God's favor? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and what? 
today and for how long? Forever, right? That's your standing. Meaning this, listen very carefully, this, is, this, this will change your life if you, if you get this. The days where you kill it in obedience, you wake up at 5.30 a.m., read, read your Bible in Greek, right? You memorize 20 verses. You witness to 10 people outside. You pray for a homeless guy. He gets converted. Whatever. Pick something awesome. That day versus the day where you wake up late because you're mad. You stub your toe, you say something stupid. You yell at the guy in front of you in the car because everyone's too slow, too fast, too annoying, too loud. Right? You're just griping all the time. You're late to work. You don't even pray. You forgot your Bible. What's a Bible? I'm so off today. You go home and you're cranky. What makes you more righteous? The first or the second one? According to the Bible, it's none. Because it's not based on you. It never has been, friends. Who's your righteousness? Christ, does he change? No. It's no list of wrongs you have not done, a list of virtues you've pursued. It's nothing. Before God stands your righteousness, Christ, he isn't changed. Therefore, your standing doesn't. So we, we don't live by the law, meaning don't even, man, if I didn't obey today, I stink. God's mad at me. No, he's not. There's how much condemnation in Christ? Anybody know? None. Zero, right? John Flavel again said it this way. If God did not choose you when you were high, meaning stunning, he will not forsake you when you were low. Oh, I'm not good. That'll warm your heart. Christ is rich in mercy. So when you sin, confess your sins, repent of them, and look to Christ. Friends, God's only impressed with one person, with one person's obedience, and it is not yours. Praise God. Do you understand how good the news that is? For when I fall, it's Christ. Lastly, and very practically, you were forgiven to forgive others. One of the, <laughs> one of the things I often pray more for is that I will be less offended. I'm always annoyed by somebody. Get out of my way. Hurry up. Stop talking. You're so, like, at, like at Walmart. They're always in my way. They're always too slow. They're always too weird. They're always too mean. They're always too loud. Right? I'm the only one. All right. I'm always annoyed. Bitterness is just like a slithering snake. It creeps into your heart and then it bites, right? Friends, we are all people that are so easily offended. It's always their fault. They're always wrong. When someone says something wrong, it's, they meant it on purpose. They don't like me. They're trying, they're trying to be mean to me. It's always a bad intention. Instead, I'm right. I should be first. I'm more important. How dare you? How dare you, right? That's how I think. That's just foolish. It's so easy to talk about forgiving others, right? Man, brother, you should go forgive that guy. But when someone takes, like, the last cookie, I'm so bothered. Like, seriously, it's my cookie, man. And just dumb stuff. We think so highly of ourselves, right? How dare someone sin against me? Look who I am. Isn't that blasphemous? We think we're God, right? How dare they sin against me? You know who I am? It's foolish. So the gospel says this, Luke chapter 7. He who is forgiven much loves much. Meaning, if you're a Christian, it means this. C.S. Lewis said it this way. To be a Christian means to forgive the seemingly, I'm saying seemingly, seemingly inexcusable because God has forgiven the excusable in you. Why? Well, remember, you died, right? You're dead. You guys think those people out in the graves are offended by how you live? No, of course not. 
then why are we so offended by everybody else? Be less offended. Christ is not offended by you. He's forgiven you. Pursue reconciliation, right? Be peaceful. You're dead. Christ lives in you. I want to close with a really simple exhortation here. If you had never really understood conversion, I'm glad you're here. If the gospel is not clear to you, I'm glad you're here. If you don't even know what it means to be a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. If you are a Christian and you just want to stand by the fire and just warm, I hope that was warming for you. Let's pray.